The upper left corner of the United States is full of stunning scenery. Beautiful mountains, raging rivers, breathtaking valleys, and so much more. But the Pacific Northwest is also known for something more sinister. This beautiful land also seems to be a breeding ground for serial killers and others who perform heinous acts. I was born and raised in the Pacific Northwest, and I've had a fascination with true crime since childhood. I'm here to tell you the true crime stories of the PNW. Grab your sweater and a cup of coffee. I'm your host, Emily, and this is The Upper Left Corner. in Northern California and Nevada, a hostile terrain for any parachute drop, especially at night. Police believe he left the 727 in the flatlands of Oregon or Washington, but they are still looking in four states, even around the airport. Authorities began their search here, thinking the hijacker may have jumped off at the end of the runway as the plane touched down. But the problem is more complex. A daring parachute escape from a flying 727 somewhere between Reno and Seattle, Washington. Today, I'll be telling you the unsolved mystery of D.B. Cooper. This case was suggested on Instagram by my listener, Hayden. Thank you, Hayden. Let's head to our PNW town profile. Ariel, Washington is an unincorporated community in Cowlitz County, Washington. Ariel is located 11 miles northeast of the city of Woodland along Washington State Route 503, north of the Lewis River and on the northwest bank of Lake Merwin. Ariel is best known for its celebration of D.B. Cooper, which occurs at the store-slash-tavern every year. In my show notes, I'll link a YouTube video of Ariel, and you can see A, how beautiful it is, and B, how hard it would be to search that area for someone who parachuted from an airplane. Now on to the case. On the eve of Thanksgiving 1971, a middle-aged man approached the flight counter of Northwest Airlines at Portland International Airport. He was carrying a black briefcase and paid for his one-way ticket for a 30-minute flight to Seattle with a $20 bill. He identified himself as Dan Cooper and boarded the Boeing 727, taking his seat in the 18th row. The man, wearing a black suit and tie, ordered a bourbon and soda as he awaited takeoff. Flight 305, which was only about a third of the way full, departed Portland right on schedule at 2.50 p.m. on November 24, 1971. Shortly after takeoff, Cooper handed a note to flight attendant Florence Schaffner as she sat in the jump seat nearest to him. Florence had assumed he was just a lonely businessman handing off his phone number, so she dropped the unopened note into her purse. Cooper leaned down toward her and whispered, 
Miss, you'd better look at that note. I have a bomb. She opened the note that was printed in neat, all capital letters with a felt tip pen. Its exact wording is not known because Cooper later grabbed the note back, but Florence recalled the note said that he had a bomb in his briefcase. After she read the note, Cooper told her to sit next to him and she complied. She quietly asked to see the bomb. Cooper opened the briefcase just long enough for her to get a glimpse of eight red cylinders attached to wires and a large battery. After closing the briefcase, he made his demand. He requested $200,000 in cash, four parachutes, one front and one back parachute, and reserves for both, and a fuel truck standing by in Seattle to refuel the plane on arrival. Florence went to the cockpit and relayed the message to the pilots. The captain, William A. Scott, who had served in the Air Force during World War II, contacted air traffic control at SeaTac who then went on to inform local and federal authorities and told the other 35 passengers that their arrival in Seattle would be delayed due to a minor mechanical difficulty. Meanwhile, on the ground, the president of Northwest Airlines authorized the ransom payment and ordered all of the employees to fully cooperate with the hijackers' demands. The aircraft circled the Puget Sound for nearly two hours to allow time for the Seattle police and FBI to gather the parachutes, ransom money, and get emergency personnel in place. Back in the air, during the laps around the area, the flight attendants took note that Cooper seemed familiar with the Seattle area. He was able to correctly point out Tacoma and mentioned that McCord Air Force Base was only a 20-minute drive from the SeaTac airport. The flight attendants described his demeanor as calm, polite, and well-spoken, not at all consistent with the stereotypes of a hijacker, which typically were enraged men, hardened criminals, or take-me-to-Cuba political dissidents. Flight attendant Tina Mucklow later told investigators, quote, He seemed rather nice. He was never cruel or nasty. He was thoughtful and calm all the time, end quote. He ordered a second bourbon and soda, paid his tab, and left a tip, which the flight attendants refused. He also offered to request meals for the flight crew during their stop in Seattle as a part of his demands. Meanwhile, back on the ground, the FBI was hard at work assembling the ransom money from multiple Seattle-area banks. They used 10,000 unmarked $20 bills, most with serial numbers beginning with the letter L, indicating they were issued by the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco, and most from the 1963A or 1969 series. They made a microfilm photograph of each and every bill to keep on record. At 5.24 p.m., about two and a half hours after takeoff, Cooper was informed by a flight crew member that his demands had been met, and at 5.39 p.m., the plane landed at SeaTac. The other passengers, who were under the impression that they were circling the Puget Sound due to a minor mechanical error, exited the plane without even really knowing what was happening. It was more than an hour after sunset, so Cooper instructed the pilot to taxi to an isolated, brightly lit section of the airport and close every window shade in case there were snipers outside. Northwest Airlines Seattle Operations Manager Al Lee boarded the plane in street clothes as he was worried his airline uniform would cause Cooper to mistake him for a police officer. He delivered the knapsack filled with cash and parachutes. Once the delivery had been completed and Cooper had approved of the parachutes, he ordered all of the passengers and two of the three flight attendants off the plane. 
Ground crews began the refueling of the plane, and Cooper made his next demands to the cockpit crew. He stated he wanted a southeast course towards Mexico City at the minimum airspeed possible without stalling the aircraft, which would be about 100 knots or 115 miles per hour. He also demanded that the plane not pass an altitude of 10,000 feet. He wanted the landing gear to remain deployed in the takeoff and landing position, the wing flaps to be lowered to 15 degrees, and the cabin to remain unpressurized. Co-pilot William J. Redizak, who had served in the U.S. Air Force during the Korean and Vietnam Wars, informed Cooper that the aircraft would only be able to go about 1,000 miles under those specified conditions and that they would have to make a stop to refuel along the way before they made it to Mexico City. They agreed upon a fuel stop in Reno, Nevada. With the plane's rear exit door open and its staircase extended, Cooper directed the pilot to take off. However, Northwest Airlines' home office objected, stating it was unsafe to take off with the staircase deployed. Cooper countered, stating that it was safe, but he would not argue the point and would lower it once they were airborne. The FAA requested a face-to-face -face meeting with Cooper aboard the aircraft, which he denied. At this point, the refueling was complete and the plane was cleared for takeoff. With only five people remaining on board, including Cooper, the pilot, the co-pilot, one flight attendant, and a flight engineer, the Boeing 727 took off at 7.40 p.m. Two F-106 aircrafts were scrambled from McCord Air Force Base and followed behind the airliner, one above and one below out of Cooper's eyesight. Other military aircrafts diverted from their missions to shadow the hijacked plane as well. At one point, there were five planes trailing them. Not long after takeoff, the flight attendant who had been sitting with Cooper this whole time was told to join the rest of the crew in the cockpit. As she complied, she observed him tying something around his waist. 20 minutes after takeoff, at around 8 p.m., a warning light flashed in the cockpit, indicating the stairs had been deployed. The crew used the intercom to offer to help him, but he refused. Then there was a change in cabin pressure, which is an indication that the door had been opened. At approximately 8.13 p.m., the tail section of the plane suddenly jolted up to the point that trimming was required to level the plane. This indicated that was the point at which Cooper had jumped. At about 10.15 p.m., pilot Scott and co-pilot Radizak safely landed the 727 at the Reno airport with the stairs still deployed. FBI agents, state troopers, sheriff's deputies, and Reno police surrounded the jet as it had not been determined with certainty that Cooper was no longer aboard. They searched the plane and determined he had jumped. At this point, the massive FBI investigation was underway. Agents recovered 66 unidentified latent fingerprints from the aircraft, Cooper's clip-on tie, his tie clip, and two of the four parachutes, one of which had been opened and two suspension lines had been cut out. They also recovered eight filter-tipped Raleigh cigarette butts. The info that they had the tie and tie clip was not announced to the public for almost 20 years, and the cigarette butts were lost at some point after the hijacking. They would not have been a big deal to the investigation at the time, but with DNA advances, those absolutely could have made a difference in solving this case. So it is unfortunate that they were lost. They interviewed eyewitnesses in Portland, Seattle, and Reno and began to put together a series of composite sketches. The local police and FBI agents began questioning possible suspects. They interviewed over 800 people and eliminated all but two dozen from the investigation. 
An Oregon man with the name D.B. Cooper, who had a minor police record, became one of the first persons of interest in the case. He was contacted by the Portland Police Department, but he was quickly ruled out as a suspect. As it turns out, the name D.B. Cooper was actually derived from an error by the media. A local reporter was rushing to meet a deadline and used the name D.B. Cooper instead of the name the hijacker had actually used, which was Dan Cooper. The Associated Press picked up on that specific article and republished the error to multiple media sources, causing the hijacker to be referred to as D.B. Cooper from there on out, which honestly sounds cooler in my opinion. The official physical description of Cooper has remained unchanged in the past 50 years, and it is still considered reliable. Flight attendants Florence Schaffner and Tina Mucklow were interviewed separately on the night of the hijacking and gave nearly identical descriptions of a man who was around 5 foot 10, 180 pounds, in his mid-40s, with close-set piercing brown eyes and swarthy skin. As far as suspect profiling goes, which is one of my favorite parts of true crime, super fascinating, the FBI believes he was familiar with the Seattle area and may have been an Air Force veteran. His financial situation was likely desperate, as criminals who steal large amounts of money typically do so out of urgency. Otherwise, the risk outweighs the reward. He also may have been a thrill seeker that chose to jump just to prove that it could be done. Agents also theorized that Cooper took the alias from the Belgian comic book series featuring Dan Cooper, who took part in heroic adventures including parachuting, but these comics were never translated into English nor imported to the U.S., so they speculated that he possibly encountered them on a tour of duty in Europe. They also speculated that he could have been Canadian, because those comics were sold in Canada, and he used the phrase negotiable American currency in his ransom demand, which is not a common phrase used by Americans. And since those who spoke with him said he had no detectable accent, that could point to him being Canadian, if he wasn't a U.S. citizen. Evidence also showed that Cooper was knowledgeable about flying, aircrafts, and the terrain, and they believe the reason he demanded four parachutes was to cause the assumption that he might force a hostage to jump with him, this way ensuring they would not provide sabotaged equipment. There were also several well-researched reasons he chose the 727. First, it was ideal for a bailout escape with the exit and stairs on the back of the plane, which allowed for a reasonably safe jump. It had single-point fueling, which was a new innovation at the time that allowed the tanks to be refueled rapidly through a single port, and it also had the ability to remain in slow, low altitude without stalling, unlike most other airliners of the size. He was also familiar with the flap settings and requested it to be at 15 degrees, which was also unique to the 727, and he knew the air stairs could be lowered during flight which was something that was never disclosed to civilian flight crews since there was no situation on a passenger flight that it would be necessary. Some of these details were only known by CIA paramilitary units. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Let's take a minute to talk about teeth. Between my AM love of coffee and my PM love of red wine, my teeth definitely need some attention to keep them whiter and brighter. That's why I'm so excited to tell you about my new sponsor, Smile Brilliant. If you're like me, you're confused by all of the teeth whitening products on the market. But since taking Smile Brilliant on as a sponsor, I've learned that the number one dentist recommended product is the custom fitted tray. However, they're very, very costly at the dentist office. That's why the best option is Smile Brilliant. 
With their lab's direct process, you can have a custom-fitted teeth whitening tray at a fraction of the price, without a single visit to the dentist. Using an exact model of your teeth, Smile Brilliance lab technicians will handcraft your trays to ensure the best possible results. Simply order the system at smilebrilliant.com, make your dental impressions at home, and return them to Smile Brilliant using the prepaid envelope provided. In a matter of a week, your trays will be back in the mail. As an Upper Left Corner listener, enjoy 30% off site-wide at smilebrilliant.com using code UPPERLEFT, all one word. That code is also good on their other amazing products, such as their night guards or electric toothbrushes. Head on over to smilebrilliant.com today. Your business deserves the same expertise as that of a Fortune 500 company. If you need a CIO-level service, why hire a full-time staff member at $250,000 a year when you can get this on-demand service for fractions of the cost? As your CIO on demand, we'll give you the steps you need to take so as to minimize interruption to your business and profitability and provide you and your business with training and education to prevent future attacks. To get an efficiency review for your business today, contact us at www.ee-services.com. And now back to the story. The ground search was proving to be difficult as small differences in estimates of the aircraft speed and weather conditions could vary the landing point considerably. The Pacific Northwest was having a typical late November day. It was very rainy and windy. Another important variable was the length of time he remained free-falling before pulling his ripcord, if he was even successful at opening his parachute at all. None of the trailing Air Force pilots saw anything exit the airliner, either visually or on their radar nor did they ever see a parachute open. But at night, with extremely limited visibility and cloud cover, while wearing an all-black suit, he could have gone completely undetected if he deployed the parachute just right. The FBI performed an experimental recreation of the flight using Pilot Scott flying with the same configuration. Agents pushed a 200-pound sled out of the open air stair and were able to reproduce the exact upward motion of the tail section that the flight crew had described at 8.13 p.m., making that the most likely time he exited the aircraft. At that moment, the plane was flying through a heavy rainstorm over the Lewis River in southwest Washington. The initial landing zone was speculated to be within an area on the southernmost outreach of Mount St. Helens, a few miles southeast of Ariel, Washington, near Lake Merwin, which is a lake that is formed by a dam on the Lewis River. The authorities became focused on Clark and Cowlitz counties. The FBI and sheriff's deputies searched large areas of the mountainous wilderness by foot and using helicopters. They also searched local farmhouses, ran patrol boats along Lake Merwin and Yale Lake, but no trace of Cooper or any of the items he jumped with were ever recovered. The FBI then coordinated an aerial search using airplanes and helicopters from the Oregon Army National Guard along the entire flight path, known as Victor 23 for my flight nerds, from Seattle to Reno. They spotted numerous broken treetops and several pieces of plastic and other objects resembling parachute canopies. They were all investigated and turned out to be nothing relevant to the hijacking. After a few months, the spring thaw came in early 1972, and teams of FBI agents aided by 200 Army soldiers from Fort Lewis, along with Air Force personnel, National Guardsmen, and civilian volunteers, completed another thorough ground search of Clark and Cowlitz counties. 
This extensive search lasted for 18 days in March and an additional 18 days in April. A marine salvage firm called Electronic Explorations Company used a submarine to search the 200-foot-deep Lake Merwin, but nothing came from any of these searches. That spring, two local women stumbled upon remains in an abandoned structure in Clark County. The skeletal remains were later identified as Barbara Ann Derry, a teenage girl who had been abducted and murdered several weeks prior. I have Barbara's sad case on my list. She is a suspected victim of serial killer Warren Forrest, who has been in prison for murder since 1974, for murdering another young woman. However, more and more cases are being connected to this guy through DNA. After one of the most extensive search and recovery operations in U.S. history, there was no significant evidence found related to the hijacking. Aside from the ground and air searches, the FBI distributed lists of the ransom serial numbers to banks, casinos, racetracks, and other businesses that routinely conducted large cash transactions, and also to authorities around the world. Northwest Airlines also offered a reward of 15% of the recovered money with a maximum of $25,000. The U.S. Attorney General released the serial numbers to the general public in early 1972. Shortly thereafter, two men used counterfeit $20 bills printed with Cooper's serial numbers to swindle $30,000 from a Newsweek reporter in exchange for an interview with a man they falsely claimed was the hijacker. In early 1973, with no ransom money recovered, The Oregon Journal republished the serial numbers and offered $1,000 to the first person to turn in a ransom bill to the newspaper or any FBI field office. The Seattle Post-Intelligencer followed suit with a $5,000 reward. The offers lasted nearly two years, ending on Thanksgiving 1974, and there were many near matches but no genuine bills turned in. In 1975, Northwest Airlines Insurance Agency complied with an order from the Minnesota Supreme Court and paid the airline's $180,000 claim on the ransom money. Further analysis of the original landing zone estimates were later figured to be inaccurate. Pilot Scott, who was flying the plane manually because of Cooper's speed and altitude demand, later determined that his flight path was further east than originally assumed. Additional research from a variety of sources, including a Continental pilot who was flying four minutes behind Flight 305, indicated the wind direction factored into the drop zone calculations being incorrect. This caused speculation that the actual drop zone could have been southeast of the original estimate in the drainage area of the Washougal River. Between 1978 and 2017, only four pieces of evidence linked to the case were found. Two were definite and two were potential. In November of 1978, a placard with instructions for lowering the 727 stairs was found by a deer hunter about 13 miles east of Castle Rock, Washington, well north of Lake Merwin, but within Flight 305's basic path. On Sunday, February 10, 1980, an 8-year-old boy was vacationing with his family on the Columbia River at a beachfront known as Tina Bar about 9 miles downstream from Vancouver, Washington, and 20 miles southwest of Ariel. As he was raking the sandy riverbank to build a campfire, he uncovered three packets of the ransom cash. The bills had disintegrated, but were still bundled in rubber bands. 
FBI technicians confirmed this was indeed a portion of the ransom money. He found two packets of $120 bills each and a third packet with 90, all arranged in the same order that they were given to Cooper. Six years later, after much negotiation, the recovered bills were divided equally between the boy who had found it, named Brian Ingram, Northwest Airlines Insurance Company, and the FBI retained 14 of the bills as evidence. In 2008, Brian Ingram sold 15 of his bills at auction for about $37,000. To this day, the remaining 9,710 $20 bills have not turned up. In 2017, a group of volunteer investigators uncovered what could be potential evidence in this case, which was what appeared to be a decades-old parachute strap in the Pacific Northwest followed by later that year a piece of foam that is suspected of being part of Cooper's backpack. In late 2007, the FBI announced they had a partial DNA profile that was obtained from three organic samples found on the clip on the tie in 2001. However, they acknowledged there is no way to confirm they belong to the hijacker. They also disclosed that Cooper had chosen the older of the two primary parachutes he had been given, rather than the technically superior professional sport parachute, and that of the two reserve parachutes, he selected a dummy with an inoperative ripcord that was only used during skydiving lessons on the ground, even though it had clear markings identifying it as non-functional. The two he left behind were cut up and the cords were used to fasten the money to himself. Now let's get into suspects. The FBI has processed over a thousand serious suspects, including publicity seekers and deathbed confessors, but nothing more than circumstantial evidence has ever implicated anyone. So here we go. We'll start with Kenneth Peter Christensen. In 2003, a Minnesota resident by the name of Lyle Christensen watched a documentary about the hijacking and became convinced his brother Kenneth, who died in 1994, was Cooper. He repeatedly attempted to convince the FBI and the author-slash-film director, Nora Ephron, who he was hoping would make a movie about it. And he even hired a private investigator who, in 2010, published a book insinuating that Christensen was the hijacker. Here is the circumstantial evidence that he might be our guy. Christensen enlisted in the Army in 1944 and was trained as a paratrooper. The war ended by the time he was deployed in 1945, but he did make occasional jumps while he was stationed in Japan in the late 1940s. He joined Northwest Airlines in 1954 as a mechanic in the South Pacific, and he also became a flight attendant and then a purser based in Seattle. Christensen was 45 years old at the time of the hijacking, but he was only 5 foot 8 and 150 pounds and was much lighter complected from the witness descriptions. He was a smoker and a bourbon drinker, as was the hijacker, and he was left-handed. It is speculated that the hijacker was left-handed, as his tie clip was applied to the left side. When one of the flight attendants was shown a picture of Christensen, she said he did resemble her memory of the man, but did not conclusively identify him. Christensen had reportedly bought a house with cash a few months after the hijacking. While dying of cancer in 1994, he told his brother, quote, There is something you should know, but I cannot tell you, end quote. I have two brothers, and if either one of them said that to me, I would have a lot of follow-up questions. After his passing, his family members discovered gold coins and a valuable stamp collection. 
along with over $200,000 in his bank accounts. They also found a folder of news clippings from Northwest Airlines News starting in the 1950s that stopped just before the date of the hijacking, even though the hijacking was the biggest news story from the airline's history. He continued to work part-time for the airlines for many years after 1971, but never clipped another Northwest Airlines news story. Research by my friends, the Web Sleuths, later found proof that he did indeed carry a mortgage on that home, and he paid it off in 17 years, which is still pretty impressive. The Web Sleuths uncovered proof that he had sold off almost 24 acres of land for around $400,000 right before his death which would account for the large sum of money in his bank account. The FBI stands by its position that Christensen cannot be considered a prime suspect. Next suspect. Richard McQuay Jr. boarded a Newark to Los Angeles flight on April 7, 1972, using a fake name. Shortly after takeoff, he demanded $500,000 and four parachutes. He said if he didn't receive these items, a seasoned skydiver and helicopter pilot would bomb the plane. The 727 landed and refueled, and the passengers were exchanged for the cash and parachutes. En route to the next destination, he jumped from the rear stairs. This went down less than five months after the D.B. Cooper incident, leading many to suspect that it might be the same culprit. Three days later, Richard McCoy Jr. was arrested and eventually convicted of air piracy and received a 45-year prison sentence. However, on August 10, 1974, he hijacked a garbage truck while in prison and escaped. Three months later, he died in a shootout with the FBI. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Every year, over 125,000 Americans die from overdose and suicide combined. That's not even talking about the other causes of death related to substance and mental health. Just those two. And these deaths are completely preventable. That is why Jay Schiffman, a public speaker and coach, has started the podcast, Choose Your Struggle. Jay interviews people with lived experience on topics of mental health, substance misuse, and recovery to help end the stigma and normalize the difficult conversations through empathy and vulnerability. There are massive system changes that need to happen, but until we can have honest conversations around these topics, these lives will continue to be lost. This is why Jay started the Choose Your Struggle podcast. He tells his story as a guy in long-term recovery who survived two suicide attempts and an overdose. He's taking a second chance at life and making it meaningful by using this podcast as a platform. With over 100 five-star ratings, the Choose Your Struggle podcast is for everyone, from those struggling with substance or mental health issues to the people who love them. Check out the Choose Your Struggle podcast on your favorite podcast platform today. And now back to the story. Next suspect. Jack Kofelt was a con man, ex-convict, and possible government informant who claimed to be a confidant to Abraham Lincoln's last undisputed descendant. In 1972, he began claiming he was Cooper and attempted to sell his story to a Hollywood production company. He claimed he landed near Mount Hood, just southeast of Ariel, injuring himself and losing the ransom money in the process. He does bear a resemblance to the composite sketch, although he was in his mid-50s at the time of the hijacking. He, however, was in Portland around the time of the hijacking and did have a leg injury that could have been sustained from a skydiving mishap. Kofelt was interviewed by the FBI on multiple occasions, and each time his story differed in several details that had not been made public. 
Therefore, they ruled he was probably lying. In a book on the life of Lincoln's descendants released in 2008, the author discredited Kofelt's story of being a confidant to Lincoln's last descendant. Kofelt died in 1975. Next, we have Lynn Doyle Cooper. L.D. Cooper was a leather worker and Korean War veteran who was introduced as a suspect in 2011 by his niece. At eight years old, she recalled Cooper and her uncle planning something mischievous involving walkie-talkies at her grandma's house in Sisters, Oregon. The very next day, Flight 305 was hijacked, and her uncle so happened to be turkey hunting. L.D. Cooper came home wearing a bloody shirt saying he had been in a car accident. She later went on to say her uncle was obsessed with the comic book hero Dan Cooper. L.D. Cooper passed away in 1999, and the FBI would later say the DNA on the tie did not match L.D. Cooper. However, they're not sure the DNA on the tie is even D.B. Cooper's. Next suspect. Barbara Dayton was a recreational pilot and University of Washington librarian. Dayton was the first person in Washington state to receive a sex change operation in 1969. Prior to the operation, she was known as Robert Dayton and had served in the U.S. Merchant Marines and then the Army during World War II. After being discharged from the Army, she worked with explosives in the construction industry and aspired to be a professional airline pilot, but could not obtain a commercial pilot's license or be hired by an airline due to the discriminatory rules surrounding her sex change. Starting two years after the hijacking, Dayton began to divulge information to her lifelong friends, married couple and authors Pat and Ron Foreman. Dayton claimed to have staged the hijacking dressed as a man to get back at the airline industry and the FAA, whose rules and conditions prevented her from being an airline pilot. Barbara Dayton was said to have been a highly skilled pilot, parachutist, and showed a fearlessness that bordered on reckless. In addition, she was a talented machinist and an explosives expert. All of these are traits that were shown during the hijacking. She told the foremans that she hid the money in a cistern near Woodburn, south of Portland, and never spent any of it because it was more about revenge and making an airline pay for their discrimination and not about the money. There is a statute of limitations on hijacking charges. However, the FBI had quietly found a way around this by charging the person as unknown, basically placing a hold on the charges so they could be pressed at any time down the road should they identify D.B. Cooper. Once this information was made public, Barbara recanted her story. The FBI has never publicly commented on Dayton, who died in 2002. For four years after her death, the foremans researched her life, saying, quote, she was a fascinating and remarkable woman, end quote. They wrote a book that was published called The Legend of D.B. Cooper, Death by Natural Causes, and it is available on Amazon. And here's the last suspect I'll tell you about. In November of 2018, the Oregonian published an article that identified William J. Smith of Bloomfield, New Jersey as a possible suspect. The article was based on research from a U.S. Army data analyst who sent his findings to the FBI in mid-2018. Smith was a New Jersey native, a World War II Navy veteran, and would have been 43 at the time of the hijacking. During his military service, he volunteered for combat aircrew training, citing his desire to fly. After the Navy, he went on to work for the Lehigh Valley Railroad and was affected by the Penn Central Transportation Company bankruptcy in 1970, which was the largest bankruptcy in U.S. history up to that point. 
He lost his pension, and it is theorized that he had held a grudge with the transportation industry. Also, in his high school yearbook, there was a list of alumni who had been killed in World War II, and it lists an Ira Daniel Cooper, possibly the source of the hijacker's given name. The analyst also found that Smith's naval aviation experience would have given him the knowledge of both planes and parachutes, and his railroad experience would have helped him find railroad tracks and hop on a train to escape the area. He also had a close friend from New Jersey who was stationed at Fort Lewis. Smith retired as a yardmaster for Conrail, and on their website they had a picture of him, and it looks shockingly similar to the composite sketch. The FBI responded to media requests on Smith by saying it would be inappropriate to comment about specific suspects. He passed away in 2018. There are so many good suspects. There were so many that I didn't even get into because we would be here all day if I did. I think the biggest mystery is this. Did he survive? Get ready for some whiplash as I talked myself into and out of the demise of D.B. Cooper. The FBI did an extensive search for men who were reported missing after the hijacking and came up empty-handed. This would suggest that Cooper chose Thanksgiving Eve to pull off the hijacking, have a four-day weekend to hike out of the woods, make it home, and return to work or his normal life by Monday before anyone would notice he was missing. Surely, if he had died from the jump, someone would have eventually noticed him to be missing and report it. The FBI, however, was skeptical of Cooper's skydiving skills and experience. They originally thought he was an experienced jumper, possibly even a paratrooper. However, after several years, they concluded this was just not true. No experienced skydiver would have jumped in the pitch black night, in the rain, with 172 mile per hour wind in his face. He jumped wearing loafers and a trench coat, which was completely inadequate for the jump, and also for the hike out of wherever he would land. He also missed that his reserve chute was for training and had been sewn shut, something an experienced skydiver would absolutely notice. He also failed to bring a helmet, which is step number one. He chose the inferior primary chute that he could not maneuver in any way in November when the temperature was supposedly 15 degrees at 10,000 feet with no protection against the wind chill. Even if he did make it to the ground, he would be in a soaking wet suit and loafers in the middle of who knows where. This caused the FBI to speculate from the beginning that he did not survive his jump and that he probably never even got his chute open. There would be lots of reasons for a body to not turn up in this area. If his parachute did not deploy, how do I say this? There would not be much left of him to find. This is also a heavily wooded area where he could have landed in trees and gotten stuck. Also, there's lots of wildlife activity, and that could be the reason no remains were recovered. But again, if he did pass away, I feel like there would be a missing person connection. In the aftermath of the Cooper hijacking, it was the end of unscrutinized commercial airline travel. The following year, the federal sky marshal was initiated, and even so, there were 31 hijackings committed in 1972. 19 of them were trying to extort money, and the rest were mostly attempts to reach Cuba. In 15 of the extortion cases, the hijackers demanded parachutes. At the beginning of 1973, the FAA began requiring airlines to search all passengers and their bags. This caused several lawsuits, citing it was a violation of the Fourth Amendment, 
but federal courts ruled that they were acceptable when applied universally and when limited to searches for weapons and explosives. That helped deter hijackings, with only two attempted hijacks in 1973, both by psychiatric patients, one who intended to crash the plane into the White House to kill President Nixon. And then there were the changes to the aircraft itself. After so many copycat attempts in 1972, the FAA required that all Boeing 727s be fitted with a device called the Cooper Vane that prevents lowering the stairs during flight. Also, peepholes became mandated in all cockpit doors so that the crew could observe passengers without opening the door. The hijacked 727 aircraft continued to take to the sky. In 1978, Northwest Airlines sold it to Piedmont Airlines, where they re-registered it as N838N and continued to use it for domestic carrier service. In 1984, it was purchased by the charter company called Key Airlines, and they re-registered it as N29KA. Key Airlines went under, and the plane was then incorporated into the Air Force Civilians Charter Fleet that shuttled workers between Nellis Air Force Base and the Tonopah Test Range during the top-secret F-117 Nighthawk Development Program. In 1996, the aircraft was scrapped for parts in Memphis. Next crazy twist in this story. This one has all the twists and all the turns. In April of 2013, the owner of the skydiving school that furnished the four parachutes that were given to Cooper was found dead in his home in Woodenville, Washington. His name was Earl J. Cossey, and his death was ruled a homicide by blunt force trauma to the head. The killer remains unknown. Some commenters alleged possible links to the Cooper case, but authorities have stated they have no reason to believe that a link exists, and Woodenville officials later announced that they believe burglary was the most likely motive for the crime. D.B. Cooper's bold and adventurous crime inspired a cult following. There are restaurants and bowling alleys in the PNW that hold regular Cooper-themed promotions and sell souvenirs. A Cooper Day celebration has been held at the Ariel General Store and Tavern each November since 1974. In 2020, John Dower made a documentary called The Mystery of D.B. Cooper, and it is currently streaming on HBO Max. In January 2021, Rolling Stone published an article with flight attendant Tina Mucklow, who has never given an interview before. She told her story from that day. She was the newest member of the flight crew and was minding her business as a galley girl when she realized what was going on. She was the one who sat by him for most of the flight and did most of the communicating. She was also the flight attendant that was left on the plane from Seattle to Reno. She held it together until she was off of the plane and in the car with the co-pilot and an FBI agent. She broke down at that point. She continued on as a flight attendant for 10 more years after the hijacking, at which point she retired and entered a monastery as a nun. This move caused speculation for years and years. Rumors that swirled went from maybe Cooper had done something to her to maybe she was in on the hijacking. Her silence and the internet caused the situation to worsen over the years. She's had people knock on her door, sit outside her house, and she's been hounded by the press. According to the article, she says a, a very prominent journalist on the story got angry with her for not talking and wrote about her, saying she was a social isolate, quick to anger, bitter, a recluse, fragile, a wounded woman, and traumatized in one single blog post. 
No wonder she never wanted to talk to the media. She said in 1993, she left the monastery, went back to school for social services, and has been helping people in the Eugene, Oregon area ever since. She is now 71 and recently retired. She's waiting for the COVID pandemic to slow so she can get back to volunteering at the soup kitchen. On July 8, 2016, nearly 45 years after the hijacking, the FBI announced it was suspending the active investigation into the Cooper case, citing a need to focus its resources and manpower on issues of higher priority. Local field offices continue to accept any physical evidence related to the parachutes or the ransom money if any emerges in the future. The 60-volume case file of the investigation is preserved for historical purposes at the FBI headquarters in Washington, D.C. As of 2016, there was a 28-part packet full of evidence gathered over the years, and all the evidence is open to be viewed by the public. In fact, if you visit the FBI's vault portion of their website, they have scanned all the documents for your viewing pleasure. I'll link it in the show notes and on my website at upperleftpodcast.com if you're interested in checking it out. And that is the mysterious case of D.B. Cooper. This week's PNW wine I paired with my true crime is another delicious bottle from 14 Hands Winery. My neighbor gifted me the hot-to-trot white blend after my 7-year-old agreed to cat sit, and then the cat went MIA during the snowstorm. My son and I found her safely hiding in the garage in mint condition, and I was rewarded with a spirited white wine that reveals vibrant aromas of white stone fruits and citrus and mouth-watering flavors of fresh apple, pear, and melon. This is one of my go-to wines, and I have a neighbor who knows it. Cheers, and thanks for listening. left corner a pnw true crime podcast if you enjoyed the episode today please leave a five-star rating and review and share it with a friend all of the sources for this episode are listed in the show notes and at upperleftpodcast.com you can follow the show on instagram at upper left corner pod or on facebook at upper left corner podcast if you have a case suggestion or a pnw wine recommendation please email me at upperleftpodcast at gmail.com Thank you for your support.